Well, we have been led in worship well this morning. We're going to continue our worship. Join me in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, as you're turning there, just a note on the creation uh, mini conference that we're having, just so you can keep your expectations um, in check, I guess. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Safardi, he is the creation scientist and apologist, and he is the chess master, but just keep in mind, he has nothing on Dr. Sparkle Pants, okay? All right, John chapter 12, and we are coming to verses 44 through 50, where John is concluding the first half of his gospel, and he is recording Jesus' final appeal to come to him in saving faith. This is the final appeal to an unbelieving nation that has rejected him for the last three and a half years. We're getting very close to the cross. When chapter 13 opens, we will enter into Thursday night of Jesus' Passion Week. Chapters 13 through 19 cover just 24 hours in Jesus' life. But here, as chapter 12 is concluding, this is one final impassioned plea for Israel to accept Jesus as their Messiah, to leave their works-based system of salvation that the Pharisees had turned all of that into, and to come to him in saving faith. The call is to escape the darkness of their sin. That's the imagery to experience the light of God's salvation. And so there's an urgency in these final verses. Warnings of judgment are going to be issued. Promises of blessing will be offered. These are the last words this nation will hear from Jesus until he hangs on the cross in four days. Let's read the text to set it in our minds. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And this is now how Monday of Jesus' Passion Week comes to an end. Not only that, this is how Jesus' public ministry comes to an end as well. As verse 44 opens, Jesus is still in the temple. He's still in his father's house. There's still a, a level of anger as what he has seen earlier in the day. He had to cleanse the temple. If you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that this crowd has responded to Jesus, some with acceptance, others with rejection. Back in verse 21, the Greeks, the Gentiles of all people, they have received Jesus in faith. They say in verse 21, we wish to see Jesus. See is in fact of saving faith in that way. But then... 
We come to verse 34 and we see that the nation rejects, the Jews reject Jesus. They say, who is this son of man you're talking about? And Jesus is not the Messiah they wanted. The question, who is this son of man, is because of what Jesus says in verse 32. He said that he's going to be lifted up from the earth. The son of man is the one promised in Daniel chapter 7. The great king, he'd rule the nations. But now Jesus says that he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be crucified. His words only mean one thing, crucifixion. He's going to experience the most humiliating and painful way to die. And Jesus is connecting this coming death not only with Daniel 7 and the glorious Son of Man, King, but also with the one pictured in Psalm 22, the Messiah who would have his hands pierced, his feet pierced. He's connecting himself with Isaiah 53. He'd be pierced through and crushed like the suffering servant. Yes, he is the great Son of Man, the King, but he would first become the pierced God of Zechariah 12. That is not the Messiah this crowd wanted. They wanted the conquering king, son of man, but not the suffering servant, sacrificial savior. And so they scoff at Jesus. Again, verse 34. Who is this crucified, humiliated, pained, Son of man, you're claiming to be. If you're not going to take the throne now, we don't want you, we don't want your gospel. And that is the final rejection of Jesus by this people. And it's rejection that leads to Jesus' withdrawal in verse 36. You remember, these things Jesus spoke and he went away from them. Those are frightening words. He leaves them in their sin. Not only that, continue the verse, he hid himself from them. The time of salvation for this crowd has run its course. The light of the gospel has left the temple. Look at verse 35. This is what Jesus warned about for a little while longer. The light is among you. A little while. They didn't know. He meant just a few hours. Verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light. But they choose to reject the light. And so because of that rejection, the light is now hidden from their eyes. So that led then into verses 37 through 43 in John's editorial note. John explains why Israel has rejected her Messiah. By application, why people still today reject the gospel of Jesus. And John's point is this. It's no deficiency on Jesus' part. It's no deficiency in the gospel. No, men and women reject the gospel because of the hardness of their heart. We see that in verse 40, the hardened heart of the people. Verse 43, 
Sinners reject the gospel because they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. It's the note of rejection and explanation for it. But this is not how John ends chapter 12 in the first half of his gospel. In fact, he can't end the first half of the gospel with unbelief, with rejection. Because that's not why John wrote this book. He wrote this gospel so that you may what? Believe. I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God. He is the glorious son of man. He is the suffering servant. I write that you may believe and that through believing you may have life in his name. So John can't end in unbelief. Instead, he ends in in with a call to believe. And he summarizes now Jesus' final call to the nation before he left them in their sin. Before he hides himself from them. Chronologically, chronologically, verses 44 through 50 is what Jesus spoke before verse 36, before he leaves them and hides himself from them. These are things Jesus has been preaching throughout all day Monday in these temple precincts. And just notice how verse 44 begins. Jesus is not quiet. He's not subdued. No, verse 44, he is crying out. Translate it, he's shouting. His voice is reverberating through the temple. It's the Greek word krodzo. That word is used throughout the Gospels. It's used throughout the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And throughout the Synoptics, people cry out. Same word, cry out in fear. Demons cry out because of terror. The crowd will cry out because of hatred. But in John's Gospel, this word is only used four times. Each time, it's a cry of mercy. It's a shout of love. It's always crying out of the gospel. A proclamation, come to Christ in saving faith. Jesus knows the urgency of the matter. He knows the darkness of Israel's heart. He understands the holiness of his father. He's well aware of the consequences when one stays in their sin. So as chapter 12 comes to a close, he knows the light of God's grace is about to set upon this people. Their time is short. And so he cannot help but cry out. This is a gospel of urgency, the gospel of Jesus. So at this point, even before we get into the text, I hope we can feel a sense of conviction from what we see here with Christ. Let me put it in the words of Richard Baxter. He's a Puritan pastor from the 1600s. He writes this, speaking of himself, I marvel how I can let men alone in their sins. Does that not apply to us? Let's marvel how we can let men alone in their sins. While Jesus cries out in the midst of unbelief, we remain indifferent oftentimes, don't we? 
We are willing to talk to unbelievers about every topic under the sun and even have the most impassioned conversations with them. I mean, just think of the last year and a half. I am sure that all of us can say we have talked passionately about COVID-related issues, right? Talk passionately about those. In fact, if we're honest, you might even recognize that we can talk passionately about even the little things that we don't like. We can talk passionately about now having to pay eight cents for a plastic bag at a grocery store. But when it comes to the gospel, are we that passionate? Or do we just let men alone in their sins? Do we forget Jude 23? Our calling is to snatch unbelievers out of the fire. It's not a passion issue for us. It's a misplaced passion issue. That's why Baxter continues, I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they take it, and whatever pains or trouble it should cost me. My conscience accuses me. Shouldn't I not weep over such a people, and shouldn't my tears interrupt my words? Shouldn't I not cry aloud and show them their transgressions, and entreat and beseech them as for life and death? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's been constantly rejected by this people, and yet he is beseeching them to come to him in saving faith. He's showing them their transgressions. So the way I want to unpack this final appeal is by noting the four motivations Jesus uses, the four motivations Jesus gives to believe his gospel. Verses 37 through 43 explain the reasons why people reject the gospel. Verses 44 through 50 give us the reasons, the motivations people should receive Christ's gospel. Four motivations to come to Christ in saving faith. To leave your sin and receive his salvation. We can apply this in two ways. First way, these are motivations that will, Lord willing, convince you to come to Christ in saving faith this morning if you have never done that. Take these motivations to heart. Hear the call of Christ. But a second way we can apply this, these are motivations if we are Christ's. These are motivations that should move us to not stay silent, to be passionate about the gospel and speak of Christ with the unbelievers in our lives. Let's begin with motivation number one. Motivation number one, why should you come to Christ in saving faith this morning? Why should we be impassioned about his gospel with unbelievers? Motivation number one, to embrace Jesus is to be reconciled to God. To embrace Jesus is to be reconciled to God. Man's greatest problem is not COVID. And man's greatest problem is not the environment. And man's greatest problem is not rising taxes. And it's not election integrity. And it is not the supply chain issues. 
Believe it or not, man's greatest problem is that we enter this world not only alienated from God, but we enter this world at war with God. That's our greatest problem. And John has been clear back in chapter three. He who does not obey the son will not see life. That's a warning. The wrath of God instead, the wrath of God, not the blessing of God, not the love of God, mercy of God. But the wrath and anger and judgment of God abides on him. Man's greatest need is to be reconciled to his God. This is why Jesus, verse 44, cries out, he who believes in me does not believe in me in the sense of only in me. My gospel is not just about me, Jesus says. Faith in me doesn't end with me. No, to believe what I have claimed about myself, that I am the son of God and the savior from sin is also to believe in another to believe in him, the Father, him who sent me. That is to say, Jesus is the linchpin when it comes to your relationship with your creator. He's the only mediator who can grant you access and knowledge and relationship to the one you have offended by your sinfulness. He's the only one who can break down the wall of division and reconcile to you to the one true and living God. This is how unified the Son and the Father are. There is no access to the Father except through the Son. They're two distinct persons. We're we're Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These are two distinct persons, the Son and the Father, but they're inseparable You cannot have one without the other. You cannot claim to know God without knowing Jesus. And this has been Jesus' message since he's arrived on the scene. Listen to John 5. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or listen to John 14 later. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, my father will love him. If you don't love Christ, the father will not love you. But if you love Christ, notice we, we, father, son, you can have the spirit, we will come to him and make our abode with him. John 15, he who hates me hates my father also. So important is this unity between father and son. Jesus will, uh, John will repeat this numerous times, even in his letters. 1 John 2. Whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. And so reconciliation, union, Restoration with the Father requires a relationship with His Son. What does that relationship look like? Well, from those passages, it's honoring the Son and knowing the Son and loving the Son, worshiping and confessing the Son of God. 
Look at verse 45. So essential is Christ to being reconciled to his Father. Look at the claim Jesus makes. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. No mere man can speak like this. No prophet would ever dare make this claim. No patriarch ever uttered these words. Why? Because they'd be stoned on the spot. I cannot come before you and say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. That's craziness. But that's the claim Jesus makes. He's referring to nature, nature. Ontologically, they're equal, the Father and the Son. He's claiming full, undiminished deity here. But why does he choose these words? See me, see the Father. Why does he choose those words? Because he's bringing his hearers back to the Old Testament and a refrain. You know the refrain. Exodus 33. What does God say? You cannot what? You can't see my face and live. You can't see me. No man can see me. But Jesus says when you look at him, all of that changes. He does what no one else can do. He makes the Father visible. He's the perfect representation of the invisible God. What does that mean? The only way to see the Father is to see Jesus. The only way to be known by the Father is through Jesus. The only way to have access to the Father is by Jesus. And mark what Jesus is not saying. He's not claiming to be the Father as if they're the same person. That's not the claim here. No, he's claiming to share the same divine nature as the Father. He's claiming what John already told us back in chapter 1. No one, it's all inclusive, no one has seen God referring to God the Father. No one has ever seen God at any time. That's Old Testament truth. But again, when it comes to Jesus, that changes. The only unique God, begotten God, the Son of God, the Christ from God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father from eternity past, He's the one who has explained him, made him visible. Two persons, the Father and the Son, each sharing one nature, each sharing eternal deity. You only get to the Father through his Son. Now let's put all of this into its first century context. Because what I find amazing when I read a passage like this the people who Jesus is speaking to, they thought they knew God, didn't they? That's why they're in the temple. That's why they're celebrating Passover. They think they know God. More than that, they are sure they know God. They boasted the right bloodline. They claimed the divine covenants for themselves. They had the right scriptures. They're offering the prescribed sacrifices. They thought they knew God. 
Here, Jesus says, you don't know him. You can't know him unless you know me. Without believing my claims about myself, without coming to me in saving faith, without my righteousness being credited to your account, you will never know God. You will never know the Father. Despite all of your efforts, you'll never be accepted by him, never reconciled to him. And access to the Father necessitates faith in His Son. Only when, when one sees the Son will they see the Father. Now, what are the implications from this claim? Bring out two. Number one, for anyone who thinks that God is an inclusive God, meaning that God will receive any and all regardless of what they believe or who they believe, just as long as they believe. That's our postmodern world, isn't it? If you think God is an inclusive God, Jesus' words here are a warning. Again, the Father will only accept those who come to him through his Son. The gospel is an exclusive gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone. Which leads then to a second implication that reconciliation with God requires Jesus' name being known. And thus we, as Christ's ambassadors, we must speak of Christ more than COVID. We must speak of Christ and call people to believe in Christ. We must call people to repent from sin and follow Christ. Without Christ, there is no knowledge of the Father, no access to the Father. Without Christ, sinners will only remain outside of the Father's blessing and as John 3 says, under the Father's wrath. This is the first motivation to come to Jesus in saving faith. The first motivation to speak of Christ's gospel with the unbeliever to embrace Christ is to be reconciled to God. It is the only way. Leads to a second motivation. Motivation number two. To believe in Jesus is to be freed from your sin. Believe in Jesus is to be freed from your sin. Come to Christ now. Be freed. Speak of Christ with passion so the unbeliever is freed from sin. Again, the Old Testament is clear. Sin has infected every one of us. Every one of us. And I don't care how cute the baby looks. The baby's depraved. Okay? <laughs> No goodness ever dwells within us apart from Jesus. We have no righteousness to our name. 1 Kings 8, there is no man who does not sin. No man. Psalm 14, speaking of all mankind here, they have all turned away together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. How about this question from Proverbs 20? Who can say, 
I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? Answer, no one. No one. This is why Jesus offers his promise in verse 46. He says, I, and it's emphatic in the original, I, only I can do this. Again, exclusivity. I have come as light into the world. I am the light of God. I am the light of God's holiness. And I can expose what we do not want to see within ourselves. Christ can expose the darkness of our depravity. Christ can expose the true nature of our character. Again, we are told this back in chapter one. Jesus is summarizing what he has said throughout his ministry. John 1, 9, the true light, the genuine light, the full light of God has come into the world and that light enlightens. It shines a spotlight on every man. Compare this to what Jesus said in verse 45. Jesus reveals the invisible God. Here, Jesus reveals the depth of our sin. His light shows the darkness of our heart. Against his sinlessness, we are exposed. Against his holiness, we are found wanting. Against his righteousness, we all fail miserably. This is one reason why the world did not welcome Christ when he arrived from heaven. So Jesus said in John chapter 3, when the light is exposed, people want to stay in darkness. Don't shine the light on me. I don't want to see who I truly am. So why the world still does not welcome Christ and his gospel. Again, Jesus does what only God can do. He shines the pure, unsullied, bright, blinding light of utter perfection Verse 46 again, he shines it on the world, the sinful world. No one is hidden from his sin-revealing rays. And thus, before the light of Christ, all self-righteousness is exposed. Self-righteousness is seen to be those filthy rags before God. The light of Christ, all good deeds, all man-made efforts. It's what sinful man thinks will appease God. All of those are shown to be nothing but worthless attempts at appeasing their creator. And this is a painful experience to have Christ's light shine upon us and to show our depravity. But notice what Jesus says, it's necessary, though painful, it's necessary. Middle of verse 46. Christ reveals our sins so that, this is necessary, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. This is necessary. It's only when our sin is exposed that we will desire forgiveness from God. It's only when our depravity is laid bare before our eyes that we will seek the salvation only Christ can give. 
like a surgeon. The incision must be made before the body can be fixed. So too it is with Jesus. He must pierce our darkened hearts with the blade of his holiness so that conviction for sin will be experienced and a recognition of our helplessness will be realized and repentance, a turning from our sin, will be chosen. Though painful, it's necessary. And there's a great promise that Jesus holds out. Again, this is the motivation, great promise. Flee from the darkness of your depravity. Come to the light of my holiness. And Jesus says, notice the end of verse 46, you will not remain. You will not stay and live and reside in darkness. The guilt of your sin will no longer press upon you. God's wrath against sin will no longer hang over your head. The power of sin will no longer chain you. The temptation is to run from the light. Don't do that. Do not hide from Christ's holy rays. No, instead run to the light. Come to Christ in saving faith. Confess your helplessness. Confess your sin. He already knows it. And receive full forgiveness and complete pardon that only Christ can give. That's the second motivation here. Why should you come to Christ in saving faith now? Why would, should we speak of Christ's gospel with passion? Because to believe in Jesus is to be freed from your sin. There's a third motivation. Motivation number three. To reject Jesus is to secure divine judgment. From promise to now warning, to reject Jesus is to secure divine judgment. Jesus now turns from that promise of full forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. He now turns to a threat of future judgment. Be warned, Jesus says, be warned. My gospel is a threatening gospel. My gospel carries with it final day sentencing. If you refuse it. Notice verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, now take a step back. Jesus is once again equating himself with God, with his Father. Not only do you see God when you see Jesus, but you also hear God when you hear Jesus. Again, the Old Testament is clear. Only God's words are to be obeyed without reservation. Deuteronomy 27, obey Yahweh your God and do his commandments. Obey him. Well, what do we find Jesus saying here? Not only obey God's commandments, obey my commandments. Obey my sayings. My words are on par with God's words. 
Now, what are the sayings that Jesus is referring to here? Obey what? Well, it includes every call Jesus has made to come to him in saving faith and to turn from sin. Those are the sayings. Obey my sayings. Obey John 3. Whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Obey that. Believe. Obey John 6. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Believe. Obey. Remember, if you do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on you. Obey his words, his call. Let go of your self-righteous efforts to earn God's favor. Believe that only Christ grants you access to his Father. Believe he's the eternal Son, the suffering Savior. But also obey by following him, turning from your sin. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. My sayings, those are, that's Jesus' gospel call. Repent of your sin and come to Christ in saving faith, resting on him alone. But for everyone who refuses to obey Jesus' words, Notice verse 47, I do not judge him. I do not judge him. And here we might think, well, we're off the hook, right? Uh, Obey me, but then Jesus says, "Ah, don't worry about it. You won't be judged. That's not the point here. I do not judge him in the sense of I do not judge him now. I do not judge him on this day. Why? For I did not come from heaven to earth I did not come, not I will not come because he is coming in judgment later. But I did not come to judge the world. No, I came to save the world. That's the first coming. In this first coming, Christ came to be raised up on a cross, not seated behind a judge's bench. In his first coming, he came to be forsaken by his father, not to convict the guilty of their sin. But do not stop reading at verse 47. Because there will be a second coming of Jesus. And he describes it in verse 48. He who rejects me, the word reject here, not just outright rejection, but neglects me, displaces me, slights me. If you don't give Jesus the honor that is due his name, If you don't take his gospel call seriously, Jesus says, be warned, judgment is coming. He rejects me and does not receive my sayings. My gospel has one who judges him. Judgment is coming. The word I spoke is what will judge him on that last day. Every claim I made about myself being the son of God, that will be your judge. Every call I offered for you to come to me to be freed from your sin, that is the judge against you. My gospel will stand as your judge on the last day. 
And that phrase, the last day, it refers to the final day when every unbeliever will stand before the glorified Christ as he sits on his great white throne. It's described in Revelation 20. When the fate of every unbeliever, the fate of every unbeliever will be finalized and it will be sealed. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life at that point will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus says judgment is coming. J.C. Ryle puts it so well. There is a last day. The world shall not always go on as it does now. There is a time appointed by the Father when the whole machinery of creation shall stop. The very sun shall rise and set no more. Rent days, birthdays, wedding days are often regarded as days of absorbing interest, but they are nothing compared to the last day. There is a judgment coming. Men have their reckoning days and God will have his too. The book shall be opened and the evidence brought forth. There will be no concealment, no evasion, no false coloring. Everyone shall give account of himself to God and all shall be judged and the wicked shall go away into everlasting fire. These are awful truths, but they are truths and ought to be told. The man who rejects Christ, who will not hear his call to repentance, he is the man who in the judgment day will have reason to be afraid. It's a ter terrible thing to fall in the hands of a living God. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living Christ. So I ask you, do you believe the gospel of Jesus? Have you cherished the claims Christ has made about himself? Do you honor him as the eternal son? Honor him, not slight him. Do you honor him? Have you turned from your sin and followed him and continually follow him? Or have you displaced him? Neglected his gospel? Cast him aside for another day? This third motivation to reject Jesus is to secure for yourself divine judgment. Leads into one final motivation Jesus gives here. Motivation number four. To receive Jesus is to be granted eternal life. To receive Jesus is to be granted eternal life. Verse 49 for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Again, my gospel is not just my gospel. It's the Father's gospel. My gospel is God's gospel. This is why judgment comes to those who reject it. No one can reject God's words or God's son without punishment falling upon him. God will not be mocked. 
But just as the warning of Jesus is so true, so is the blessing Jesus gives here, the promise. For all who obey the gospel call and come to Jesus in saving faith and turn from their sins and follow him as Lord, the promise in verse 50 is for you. I know that my gospel is what? It is eternal life. You'll be spared from judgment. You'll be given life with God forever. You'll be given a life of full joy and pleasure forevermore. For those who obey Christ's call, Christ will repair your relationship with your creator. Divine blessing will be bestowed upon you. Full satisfaction will be experienced. Paradise will be regained. Reconciliation will be restored. Again, verse 50, you will be granted eternal life. And I love how Jesus ends verse 50. Because this is not just a promise from Jesus. This is a promise also from the one who sent him. This is a promise from God himself. Finish the verse, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is a, prob- a promise from heaven itself. God's gospel gives you the promise of eternal life. And that is how the first half of John's gospel comes to an end. I write these things that you may believe. Will you heed Jesus' gospel call? Will you believe From chapter 13 on, we're going to enter into the upper room discourse. It's a farewell address, and it's given only to Jesus' disciples. The question is, will you heed Jesus' call here so that as as chapter 13 begins, all the promises given to the disciples will be promises for you as well? Will you come to Christ in saving faith? Will you let the light of his holiness expose your sinfulness? Will you be reconciled to your creator and be granted eternal life? And for us who are Christ's, will we speak of this gospel with passion? Will we plead, cry out with the unbelievers God has placed around us? Father, This is a glorious gospel. It's a gospel that only heaven can give. We thank you that in love and mercy and care, you have sent your son to first be that suffering servant who would pay for our sins so that we would have entrance into his kingdom And we thank you that he is indeed coming again. He will rule and he will reign. But he also will judge. Father, may we take that future judgment serious. First, for ourselves. Let us examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Let us take this serious for those unbelievers you have placed within our lives. They would bring this gospel of hope 
to them and wait for your spirit to change their hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.